My name is Bill, a teaching pastor here at Bethel Christian Church, and I'd like to welcome all, all of us here today as we continue looking into God's Word, specifically the Gospel of John, that's the fourth Gospel, and we are just beginning chapter 3, so if you want to follow along in the, um, in the Bibles in front of you, make sure that what I say is so, that's great, we'll also, Lord willing, the creek don't rise, have, um, have the text up on the screen. Shortly. <laughs> All right. Well, the um, the title of today's sermon is paternity, and uh, I, I the the image that's most seared in my mind, perhaps in a negative way, comes from anybody watched the Jerry Springer show. You can admit it, right on. Uh, Mari Povich. Okay, other other daytime talk shows. Now, now when, I was, when I was going through school and, and I'd be sick and I'd be home, daytime TV was a lot different, or that's, that was basically Price is Right. And I'm like, wow, this is a parallel universe. I had no idea existed here. But, but day, daytime TV or daytime talk shows in particular, uh, since the 90s following, they, they tended to follow this, this shock motif where let's, let's get the most... Um, compressed family dysfunction possible, and we're just going to throw it all up on the stage, and it's going to be sensational. And as long as the ratings are being driven, um, doesn't matter. And, and this really led the way for just what, what we've come to expect from daytime uh, talk shows, by and large. Um, probably one of the most formulaic scripts that they followed was the uh, online paternity test. And so you'd have somebody got done wrong by somebody somehow, sometime. And, and it was usually uh, this, this woman crying, um, my boyfriend doesn't want to be with me, found out I'm pregnant and doesn't say it's his, and back and forth, and his story. And they have hype people work in the crowd. Oh, you did it! No! Oh! You know, and they're just trying to drive this up. But the, the, all the paternity test talk shows... And the, the question is this, whose baby is it, whose responsibility is it? And it would come down to this, both parties are promising this and that, and there's a third party an interloper, and who did this and that? And then it's finally Mari or Jerry or whoever would, um, you know, are you ready for the results? Okay, all right. And then it's one of two outcomes, and it's just horribly tragic either way. Either it's not this guy's kid, and he's doing the victory dance, he's like, whoa! Yeah, yeah, sucks to be you. And just rubbing it in her face, and she's devastated. <laughs> what am I going to do? Ah, it's Jocko, the dog-faced boy's son, not this guy. Ah. And, and it's this, this tragedy. Or it really is his son, and he just, he just paralyzed. He's like, oh, oh, what am I going to do? And then the woman's like, ah, it's legal. We got you now. You owe us. Paternity. This is anything but paternity. This is anything but being a, um, being a father, being a child. Oh, thank you. God bless you. All right. Um, see that needs. See that hand. Thanks. Um, because all they're focusing on in regards to paternity is DNA, is the author, is, is who technically, genetically does this child belong to. But as that child grows... That day, that test, that sensationalism, that legal decision, who is who and who owns and, and all of that, that, none of that really matters. That what is going to be an increasing influence in that child's life is one thing and one thing only. It's who raised the child. 
Children take on the characteristic of who raised them. And, and that, that really, it, it doesn't matter whether you're, you have a genetic child, an adoptive child, uh, a family member that's brought in. Um, those circumstances can be very, very different. But what, makes, what, what you can take to the bank and makes the biggest difference is simply this, who raised the child? That's who the child's going to say, this was my father, this, this is my mother. And this is really what we're looking at in John chapter 3 when we talk about faith. Now, we probably have one of the most famous verses in all of evangelical Christendom, John 3.16, in here. And it's a shorthand for the good news of what God has done in our life and meeting us. But I I think in holding this at arm's length and reducing the Bible to, if you're only going to read one verse, it's this, we tend to forget that this isn't a category. This isn't a finishing line we're trying to get people over. Just say this prayer. Just say these words and it'll magically make you a Christian. It's recognizing who you are and who you can be, who you were made to be and who really wants to raise you, who really wants to have the greatest influence in your life. And so rather than looking at this as what is the right answer or the right category, like to look at why is John choosing to tell this story out of frame as well? Okay, last week we looked at the cleansing of the temple, right? Cleansing of, the temple, cleansing of the temple happened when in the ministry of Jesus? Beginning of his ministry or end? End. Right, it was the last week. The final week of his ministry, uh, Passover, it began with him cleansing the temple. So the second day after the triumphal entry. And then he was crucified. It was the cleansing of the temple that actually got him put up on the cross. When he had the audacity to say, this temple... That is your identity. This religion, that is your badge of honor. This, this structure, they had edifice complex, is, is where you derive your security. God dwells here, and as long as you are here, you're safe, and you can do whatever you want. And he challenged all of that, saying, tear it down. It took you 46 years to do this. Tear it down. I will replace it in three days. And it was that cryptic statement right at the end. Uh, Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. And so what he was doing, he was replacing the temple, replacing religion, replacing our efforts of coming to God with himself, with a person, with a relationship. And, and, and so what we have here is the first miracle, changing water to wine, water representing the, our, our religious ways of getting to God and saying that is not enough. Even full is not enough. The radical difference that Jesus makes where it's more, it's better, it's more than we could ever imagine. It gets us off guard and only a few people knew about it and through the context of their lives and stories, the story spreads. And then we have Jesus replacing the temple with himself. And now we have Jesus having a personal encounter explaining, well, what does it mean that it's no longer what you do but, but who I am and who you trust. And that, that's what we're going to be breaking down and looking at now. What we act like, ultimately, what comes out is a strong indicator on who actually raised us. And that, that uh, relates to our um, earthly parents, and it relates to our spiritual ones as well. See, Jesus could actually take this principle, and in five chapters later, chapter 8, he's going to accuse the religious leaders of being fathered by the devil. Because they're believing lies. They're, 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 they're promulgating lies. They're holding on to something and they can't let go. So he says, the way you're acting, you're acting just like your true father. The one in whose influence you most bear. And that's the devil. They, they took some issue with that for some reason. Because they had assumed Abraham was their father. They were in the right category. They were safe. 
So what John is doing, he's continuing to mess with people. The other three Gospels had come out. People had a record of Jesus' life. They knew the story and the way it played out. And he's showing the scenes now in different order to draw this out. You see, this discussion with Nicodemus, this was prompted by him cleansing the temple. So this, chapter 3, also takes place at the end of Jesus' life. What chapter did I say we were in? Three. Is at the beginning or the end of the book of John? It's the beginning, yeah. So why is another event at the end of his life now being shot, the lens through which we see Jesus at the beginning of the story? Okay, John's saying this is pretty important. If you're going to understand who Jesus is, how he rolls, why he does what he does, how to understand him as he relates to us, we're going to have to get our, our, our heads around this. We're going to have to get our, our hearts around this. So let's look at John chapter 3. Do we have text? We're still... Text has been raptured. So, hey, sword drill. Old school, folks. All right. Woo. Glad I printed out the text. This would be awkward. All right. So follow along with me. Pew Bibles. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's called the Sanhedrin. This is 70 uh, Jews. There was the Roman Empire, which ruled all of Judea, but the Jews were allowed some self-government, and they were governed by the 70, this, this, uh, this council, also, like I said, Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was one of the members. So he's one of the bigwigs, the mucky mucks, and he's coming to Jesus. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Now, Nicodemus has gotten a bad rap. Because Nicodemus, there's, uh, there's other, like later on we read in other Gospels that Nicodemus, who was a member of the council, emphasizes that again, was a secret disciple. He was, in, he was afraid of the other rulers and what his profession of faith might cost him, so he was a secret disciple. And so Nicodemus gets this bad rap of he was just sort of, he could see it, but he was a coward. He kind of stayed in the shadows. Nicodemus rocks because God met him right where he was at, and rather than saying it's too much, he was willing to just take a small step, and the next step, and the next step. And they might have been small steps, but it got to where Nicodemus was actually seen taking the body of Christ with Joseph of Arimathea and burying him. And so even the disciples who said, I'm going to live this radical life for you, God, they fled. And that gives me great hope because when I read these radical books, like radical, or, or other books that say, this is how God built his church. It's with these radical disciples that gave up family and gave up everything. And they're willing to, to martyr themselves for Christ. And that's the heart of discipleship that we need today. And I compare myself with these lionized views of the disciples. I think there's no way. Something's wrong. I'm empty compared to them. I didn't get it. It didn't take. I, I'm, I'm floundering here. But here's the great news with Nicodemus. He's the norm for everyone. He is somebody who was in a situation, handpicked by God, placed there. And God met him on his own terms. And he just took the next step and the next step. And God didn't care if there were giant leaps or if there's small little, you know, little xylophone sound effect. You know, he didn't care as long as he's moving in that direction. Because here's the reality. These lionized disciples that we're supposed to be like, where were they at the cross? There's only John and and three, four women. And that's it. Everyone else fled. John Mark, who we're going to see in Acts, was probably the guy who wanted to get away so much he ran away naked. 
They're holding on to his clothes trying to arrest him. And he's like, <laughs> and ran away. Really? So that's the reality. And we're told to follow these mythical creatures who just, you know, once Jesus was resurrected and Acts 2 happened, they just went ahead into the world and turned it upside down. No, they didn't. They were still idiots, just like me, just like you. They were still learning, just like me, just like you. They still sinned and make mistakes, just like me, just like you. But God loved them, used them anyway. Remember that glorious verse just before the Great Commission. They were all assembled. They'd seen the risen Christ for 40 days. They're ready to turn the world upside down. The 11 were there waiting for the ascension. And it said this, some of them still doubted, but they worshiped him and he used them anyway. And so he meets us in our doubts. He meets us in our reality, just like Nicodemus. So he says, Nicodemus came to him at night and everything. thinks, oh, what a coward. But I, I think here's the better reason. The crowds were all over Jesus all the time because this is Passover and there were all sorts of events going on. It was a public deal. Every time Jesus was attacked by the Jewish leaders, it was in the temple during Passover, during the daytime and seeking to trick him. They ask him this question and seeking to trip him up. They ask him that question. And it's this antagonistic, you know, showdown at the OK Corral. Who's going to blink first? And, and they have this duel with, um, well, what does Scripture say? Render unto Caesar. Give to God what is. And so he's continuously um, having this showdown. And so I believe Nicodemus didn't want to step up there because he wanted to separate himself from the antagonistic crowd. So he showed up at night so he could have unhindered access to Christ. So they could have time to talk. So that he could meet him where he was and not just playing to the gallery or the crowd. So the fact that Nicodemus meets him at night, I don't think it's because he was a coward or because he was embarrassed or the powers of evil were at hand or anything like that. I think simply he couldn't get Jesus out of his head. That when Jesus said, tear this down, tear this temple down, this temple that had defined Nicodemus, this temple that as a boy in Hebrew school, he aspired to and he worked and he was the head of his class and that was his identity and he could work the levers and he was better than anybody at religion and he got to be one of the 70. He stuck his landing, he arrived. And yet this guy that was just disturbing and driving animals out with a cord and overturning tables and screaming and, and everyone is freaking out. He said this statement that couldn't get out of Nicodemus' mind. Tear this temple down, I'll raise it up in three days. There's something more to this. And so he recognized throughout the ministry, Nicodemus wasn't blind. He saw the miracles that God was doing in Christ. He saw the healings. He knew he taught with authority. He knew there was something far beyond this. And so he meets him to get to the bottom. What really is this kingdom that I'm an expert in? And now apparently I feel like I'm starting over. Nicodemus was intrigued. Right on. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Jesus replied, very truly, that's the word amen. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus looked at him and said, well, Nicodemus, I've got bad news for you but really bad news for your mom. No, no, he didn't say that. So he meets him right where he's at. He says, Jesus, okay, here we go. Well, Jesus answered again, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see the effect. You see the difference. But you don't know what's gone before. You don't know what God is doing. You, you only have the here and now. And so we, can't, we have to base it on the Spirit, not the person. Okay, a whole bunch of things going on here. Talks about water and the Spirit. Strangely enough, he's not talking about two births here. He's not talking about a physical birth and a spiritual birth. He says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. And that's held in the same, to mean the same thing as you must be born again. Um, the Greek, it could be taken either way, born from above or born again. It's the, it could be translated equally. And, and both are, I think, used and intended here. It's a completely different kind of birth, born from above. And Nicodemus is asking, born again, I only know one birth. I have to do that again. He's just, he's not getting it. Remember what I said about the book of John. Jesus continually speaks at a spiritual level. That's not a higher or better level, but an ultimate level. But people continually respond to him in terms of the immediate, in terms of the physical only, in terms of their experience and their world and all that they can squeeze into it. And so the book of John encourages us to press beyond the familiar and the boundaries that we have to know the God who wants to know us much more. And so he says that there's a, spirit, there's a physical birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and we all get that. And then there's a spiritual birth. So, so in the same way that, that something has to happen for something new to take place in the physical, same thing with spiritual. But he says that water and spirit are the same thing as being born again. Okay, lots of people go, oh, well, clearly that's baptism. Oh, clearly that's um, procreation. Oh, clearly it's this. Clearly it's that. And, and I, I think we're reading all of our Christianese into this. You see, he was talking with a teacher of the law. <laughs> he, he was talking with somebody who memorized the Old Testament. Do you remember what the uh, final exam was for teacher of the law? Okay, they were continually making copies of these things, right? If they made one letter mistake, so at the end of every Hebrew book, they'd count up all the letters, the middle letter, the end letter, odd letters. It was OCD paradise to make sure everything was just so. And if it was off by one letter, they would mark the document, it would be thrown out, and it would be used for practice, target practice. And the target practice was this. When a new teacher was taking his final exam, they would roll the scroll up and drive several nails through it. And they'd hand it to him. He'd unroll it, and they'd say, replace the missing letters. Because a scroll rolled up like that, it's going to have all these letters out. So in a 10,000-word document, they have to memorize everything perfectly and replace the letters. That's the degree of detail the teachers of the law had. They knew everything. They knew the histories. They knew the arguments. They, had a ma they mastered this. So Jesus isn't talking to us who are going to pick up on some, some big movements. He's talking to an expert. And there, there's stuff all over the Old Testament regarding water and spirit being one thing, being a new birth by God, being a work that God and only God can do in us, being the promise that we're waiting, waiting for. Probably one of the more direct ones would be found in Ezekiel. I'm glad we got this up. So this is a promise. People are in exile. And it's looking bad. And they're saying all the assumptions we had about God and I could just keep doing this and everything's going to be fine, clearly wrong. Clearly there's more here and, and what's wrong with me and what happened with my understanding of God's word. So God is laying out this is all part of the plan. This is a necessary part of curing you guys of idolatry. And it worked. 
but at great cost. And so in the midst of this, this, this disaster they're in, this bondage because of their own choices, sound familiar? He lays this promise out. I will spink, sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Or as has been said most eloquently, the same sun, S-O-N or S-U-N, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so in our exposure to God, we have one or two responses, either a hardening heart like Pharaoh, as it's dried out, or a softening heart like David, like John, like Nicodemus. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, to be careful to keep my laws. Basically, what God is saying this, the law, how to have a relationship with me, this is on the outside. It's a scaffolding that I can do work on this tottering building. It's beautiful, but it's weak, and I'm building it up. So so the word saying, this is what's safe. Do this, and you will live. All this stuff on the outside, it's connected to things that are going to jack you up. Don't pull on that thread. And that was basically the law. How are you reminded in every aspect of life what it is? But what the people did is they only focused on the scaffolding and they forgot that something even valuable is being built on the inside. It was enough just to show everybody what a beautiful scaffolding I had. Forget what God's doing on the inside. And that was religion. And that was the purpose of this promise. Saying, you know what? You can't do this. It's not a matter of following enough, believing enough, loving enough, being hardcore enough. Because as long as it's an external law, You're two people. I should do this, but I feel it's this. God's saying holiness, being one, coming together is what I'm ultimately doing. And so here's the difference between the Ten Commandments and the Ten Promises. You will not covet because I am the Lord, that God that makes you holy. Dang, I know I'm going to covet. Next commercial, I'm going to covet. Next next iPad, pod, whatever iteration, I'm going to covet. So God's holy. He's going to bust me, and I'm just waiting for the hammer to drop, right? Or is it a promise? You struggle with coveting now, but you will be free. There'll come a time you won't even think about this. There'll come a time when you see me for who I am and you want me so much, all this other stuff you're not even going to worry about. And that's a promise. I'm working that in your heart, Bill. And so you will not covet, and I'm good for it, says God. You will not covet because I am the God who's holy, and you're taking on my family identity. That's what it is to be born from above, to be born again, to be born into God's family. And so there's this rich tradition in the Old and New Testament talking about adoption, talking about adoption as sons. When a king would would introduce his heir, there was an adoption ceremony, and they would use the word, today you are my son, I have begotten you, and that would be a royal title. Are we a kingdom of priests. Do you see how all this this ties in together? And and so there's a sense of adoption. You could have come from all sorts of different circumstances, and we do. But when we're adopted into the family, we take on the family's likeness. I I had mentioned a friend of mine before. If you you need reference to the story, just this is the guy that was naked on the floor trying to get back in in front of the Siberian grandmothers. Most embarrassing story ever. And he stayed and went on to become one of the most effective missionaries. Well, he and his wife adopted uh, several children. And uh, what they found out was it was awfully quiet in their house for parents of um, toddlers, pre-toddlers. 
And they go, this is strange. All of our friends, with their kids and stories, it was no sleep, and it was running back and forth, and it was this huge adjustment. And, all, all, and what they realized was, because the, uh, the um, place where they had adopted the kids from uh, had so many kids and so few caregivers, the kids learned it was no use crying. You could cry all day long, nobody's coming for you. Because there were just too many kids and not enough workers. And so every kid at that orphanage learned not to cry. It was you were not important enough to get attention no matter how loud you wailed, how long you wailed, how much you soiled yourself, you were not going to get seen, so why bother? And so it took a year for their kids to even learn to cry. But the longer that they spent in their family, they looked less like the orphanage and the values of the orphanage and the ways of showing themselves at the orphanage, and they looked more and more like their parents. They took on their characteristics of love, of grace. They learned what trust is. They learned what it is to make mistakes and apologize. They learned what it is to be okay even when you're not okay. But that didn't happen overnight. There was one act of the judge that made them their, par- their, their kids, right? Boom, adopted. They took on the last name. But even though that was one act, they, didn't, they, they continue to this day to become like their father, like their mother, um, by who raises them. Okay, and this is the big problem that Nicodemus had. He said, but I have the paper. I have the Torah. I have the promise. I have the covenants. I have the last name. I have the job. I have all this stuff that says God is my father. And, and Jesus is challenging him saying, If that were so, you would recognize what's going on. If it were so, you would not be clinging so much to the certificate and rights and privileges. And so he meets him right where he's at as well. God is going to do this work. Isn't this beautiful and great hope? I, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you. So I guess the whole immersion baptism thing we got wrong, right? kitty. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I can't cleanse me. I try all the time. It doesn't work. But I don't have to worry about it. God is good for it. I will give you a new heart. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. That is tremendous hope. I'm not going to mess it up. There is a freedom here. Because what religion has taught all of us is we don't measure up. We can't measure up. And we get tired of trying to measure up. It is a burden. And so Nicodemus felt this burden. He was a teacher of the law. And it was wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. I'll try harder. I'll double down. Nothing changes. I've got a great scaffolding and, and I'm a donut on the inside. It's empty. Surely God didn't mean for a walk to be this way. Where i got to fake it on the outside. But I know... Not a lot's really changed. So this promise, Jesus is, is, is saying, look, what does Scripture tell you? You're a teacher of the law. Nicodemus still isn't quite getting it. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still... But still, you people do not accept our testimony. What was the prologue to John, the beginning, the opening? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But here's the kicker, to his own and to not his own. To anyone, to everyone that did receive him, he gave the right to be adopted as God's child. Full paternity, not just the test, but who was raising, who's a part, who's the imprint, who has this. 
but still you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And, and that was too much. But you, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? This is Job's problem. He knew what he knew that was true on earth. And he was trying to factor in how it could be in heaven. And he couldn't. And God never gave him an answer. He simply gave him his, his calling card, his business card. He said, Job, did you, were you here when I made the earth? Do you know how it's done? Tell me, how is it done? See this guy up there? How did I do that? Science today could tell us what it is and perhaps how it came from, but still scratching the surface. So he's saying, if you don't even understand the stuff that's right there in front of you, don't get all fangled over the stuff in heaven. You're going to have to take my word for it. Taste and see. Take my hand. Come follow me. He's replacing the temple with himself. I've spoken to you of earthly things you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, what, would, what did we learn about the Son of in Hebrew? Pop quiz. Okay, Hebrew has few adjectives and really few superlatives. Like, my dad's better than your dad. My dad can beat up your dad. My dad's the greatest. Superlatives, good, better, best. Hebrew doesn't have a lot of that. So what they do is they have this phrase, this idiom called son of. So somebody who suffered horribly. Hebrew doesn't have a way of saying they suffered worse than anyone. They say this person is a son of affliction, right? Somebody who is really, really... uh, a passionate advocate for a second rights, second right amendment. We'd say they're son of, son of gun, right? Son of a gun? Okay, bad joke. Um, you, you get the point, though. And so we have, we have son of truth, son of perdition, right? Referring to Judas. Son of affliction, son of suffering, son, son of blessing. And so all of these ways of saying it. So when Jesus calls himself, and this is the one title that Jesus refers to himself more than any of the others, uh, more, more than double, son of man. So what he's saying is, I am speaking to you of heavenly things, but I am the most human human there is. I am fully human. I'm fully present in all of my humanity and all of my frailty and all of my weakness and in all of these things. And I am the only one who has come from heaven to tell you this. And so it is the absolute truth of heaven incarnated worked into our experience in a way that we can understand, we can get. Jesus is now the mediator. So now I don't have to go through a priest reading a book, listening to a commentary from another priest who's reading a book, who's listening to a commentary from another priest reading a book to tell me about God's truth, but I have a direct pipeline, and that was scary. And, and, and people realized, well, I haven't earned. I don't deserve. I, I, I wish I'd been better. W- what can I offer God? And it's shown to be what it is, Nothing. Nothing. And even a teacher of the law who seemingly had everything in everyone else's eyes needed to make that connection. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay, this is referring to a story found in the book of Numbers 21, I believe. And it was the time where God had freed his people from slavery, from bondage, to bring them to a place of dependence that they would learn to let go, that they could grasp God and learn to worship him. 
Okay, that was the exodus. That's the same thing that Jesus does with each of us. But they weren't ready for that. They weren't ready to let go, to trust God. They were still holding on. So he said, okay, I'm going to meet you where you are. And so in the very things that you see have value, we're going to spend 40 years wandering around so that you can learn God's better, God's better, God's better, God's better. We can let go, we can trust. And so in one of these lessons that they had, they had just continued to complain and complain and complain. God save us, God save us. Because they had unrealistic expectations of God. Basically, they thought, hey, we're going on a camping trip. God wasted all of our enemies. God's going to do everything I want him to do. I've been crying out for power. God showed power, so he's going to do it my way. And so what the people said is, God's going to do everything. God, where's the buffet table? Come on. And he's saying, it's not about filling your goodie bag. That's why, not why I brought you out in the wilderness. It's about that you can learn to let go of the things that were killing you. You guys still see yourselves as slaves, as we do in this world. And you still act like slaves. And you still rely on the things that slaves do. And you still cower like slaves. And so I need to teach you to let go of these things. But they kept complaining because they wanted entitlement rather than submission. So in one of these lessons, there were all these poisonous snakes, referred to as fiery serpents, poisonous snakes biting people, and they were getting sick, and they were dying. And so they complained one more time, God, take away the snakes. And he said, okay, gave you water, gave you food, protected you, gave you clothes, gave you relief, fed this army. So he said, this isn't working, because you guys aren't learning, you're not getting it. And so I'm going to foreshadow the ultimate with the immediate. And so Moses lifted up this bronze snake. Now, we have a problem with snakes in the Bible. Why is that? When, we think, when you hear snake, what do you think about? Satan. Ain't that special? Could it be Satan? Um, yeah, we, we think of the, the, the you know, um, Genesis and the temptation and the serpent. And, you know, there's this evil and, and the, the curse and all of that. Well, by this time, okay, during the wanderings in Book of Numbers, in the ancient world, the snake really had a different moniker, Okay. Snake got some bad press, and, 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 and rightly so, and, and all that story that was going on. But most people in the New World had, or old, ancient world had forgotten about that, and snake meant something else. Snake meant healing. In the Greek world, in the Egyptian world, in the, in the Babylonian world, the Ugaritic world, all that, wherever there were healers, shaman, whatever, there was a symbol of the snake. Um, you know the symbol of the codicus, the, um, you know, the medical thing? You know what I'm talking about? Am I being too goofy? Um, that's actually not the symbol for healing. Um, the god of healing was Asclepius, I believe, and that was a, a stick with a snake curling right up it. That was healing. Um, there was a captain in the army in 1907 who didn't really know his Greeks too well, and so he confused it with a codicus, which is a symbol for mercury, and so that's now the medical symbol, even though it has nothing to do with that. But the good news is if, um, you know, if an ambulance you know, has a symbol of mercury on it, that's kind of good, right? Because isn't he the fast guy? So he'll get you there in a hurry. All right. Now, the reason the guy could confuse all these snakes is because the ancient world, every time you saw a snake, it didn't have to do with Satan. Ah, that's earlier. It had to do with healing. Why is that? How do you know a snake's been around? Snake poop. No, you don't. Anybody ever see snake poop? I don't know what it looks like. How do you know a snake's been around? Maybe if, if it's just come by, you could see the path, but how else? You ever find snakeskin? Whoa, wonder what belonged to this. Yikes. Yeah, snakeskin. 
Because snakes are always shedding their skin. And so everybody saw this as a symbol of healing. The old goes away, the new comes in. The old goes away, the new comes in. So it's a symbol of healing. And so Moses was just saying, okay, the symbol that we all get for healing. He might as well put a red cross up, okay, if, if, if he was doing it today. But the symbol that everyone recognized, healing, okay, the doctor's in, just regular common symbol from the world. He lifted it up on a pole and he said, we're going to do it God's way. All right? Anytime somebody gets bit with a snake, you look to this bronze statue of a snake up on a pole. And if you're bit, you look to the snake, you're going to be healed. And if you don't, you won't. Because this is what I'm trying to do with you. Follow me. If you want to follow me, there's life. Take my hand if you want to live. But if you don't want to follow me, do it yourself. And you can carve a million different creative ways away from me. But choose. Choose now. And so people had a choice. Life's going to be this way. God's going to reward me. It's going to go great. This is, oh, oh my gosh. Oh, I got bit. Oh, 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 oh. Do we stay disappointed with God? Do we stay just trying to put the shattered pieces of our world back together? Do we stay with our hurt, our pain, our bitterness? Do we stay down? And, and often we do, and sometimes we may need to for a while. But was, is that the final word? Or do we look to God? It doesn't make sense. I'm bleeding out. I've got poison. I'm starting to get weaker. And Looking at a snake, it doesn't make sense. But this was God's provision. And so the people were separated out. Are we going to trust God beyond our experience? Or are we going to doggedly stick to what we know to be true, what we demand of God? And so the people self-selected. Those that got bit and looked to the snake, they were healed. They got bit again. They looked to the snake. They were healed. They got bit again. They looked to the snake. They were healed. Some people wandered so far off the reservation, they got bit. Guess what? Didn't see the snake too far away. Some people were probably really stubborn. I'm not going to look to the snake. I'm not going to look to the snake. And now the time has come to draw the final curtain. You know how that ends, right? (laughs) I did it my way. (laughs) What the heck? But, But God... God loves us that much to give us that choice. Do we want him or not? Because God goes where he's wanted. Okay? To everyone who received him, he gave the right to become his children. Okay, he talks about uh, eternal life. Everyone. Everyone. Who is included in that? Everyone. Everyone. We don't get to decide. Everyone. Everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, need to explain eternal life. We think of eternal life as what? I'm going to live forever. Right? We just never die. It's not a cessation of life uh, that we just continue to live. Maybe it's in a different state, but we continue living. So we, everything we've experienced now, we just put infinity on, and it just stretches on into forever. But here's the thing. How many people, and I get what's being said. It's, it's symbolizing the ultimate presence of God, the ultimate uh, re- reflexive worship to God. That, oh, this is who you are, and I just, I just want to, I can finally freely worship you, God, and I want to. So I get what people are saying. But think about this. Have you ever heard people say, and one day, everyone who's, who's claimed Jesus, everyone who's faithfully known Christ is going to be in heaven, and we will sit at the throne of the Lamb, and we will worship God day and night, and day and night, and forever and ever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years. Right? We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. 10,000 years. Now, the very same people who are saying this are going to start twitching in about 15 minutes if the service goes over time. Right? 
Now seriously, we believe eternity is going to be one long church service, and in 15 minutes, we're already opting out. So when we hear your reward for all of this is eternal life and because you faithfully followed me and you let go of all the idols you had and addictions and demons and bad choices and you're hurt and you you chose to believe what I say about you and you let me raise you up and you were my witness and I saw all the tears and I saw all the anguish and I saw that victory and I saw you being strengthened in me and you lost all your friends and you lost all your possessions but you were my witness and your reward is an eternal church service. Enter into my rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. Um, can, is it too late to take hell? Because when you add infinity to something, it's, everything turns into the same after a while. Eternal life's not the best translation. Okay, um, better translation, literally it says life of the age. And you will inherit life of the age. That doesn't make any sense to us whatsoever. That's why we interpret it differently. It's an ellipsis. The fuller rendering would be, and you will receive the life of the age to come. The life of the age that is God, that is holiness. Revelation 20 talks about this. No more tear, no more disease, no more frailty, no more sin, no more brokenness. That, that it will be joy. It's perfection. But it's perfection in the absolute presence of God. Where sin has been removed in my attitude, in my intention, in my desire, in my value, in my heart, in your heart, in this world. Penalty has been taken care of all of this. That is heaven. That is the life. That is the joy for which Christ saw and was willing to go to the cross for us. We are his his inheritance. We are his joy. So this life in the kingdom isn't that, oh, I got my get out of death free card. I believe in Jesus and so, okay, I might physically die, but I'll be resurrected in a new body and I live forever. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that when you enter into relationship with God, you have a qualitative foretaste of true life. That you are able to live now in the flesh, in this world, frail, fallen, limited, broken, being rebuilt. But at the same time, you are able to experience the life of the kingdom. The life in the way it's going to be, the life of God. And it's both of these experiences overlaid. And the more we follow God, the more we empty our heart out of this world to be filled by him the more of that eternal life or life of the age or true life or full life we will experience here and now. Big difference between the two rather than just marking time or or just eternity versus a qualitatively different way of, of, of experiencing life, experiencing God, experiencing one another. And so it normalizes both of these experiences all in one. And now we get to football. For God so loved the world, this is John summarizing, the, the, um, most likely this is John's paraphrase of what just went down between Jesus and Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because they're... 
their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And so this is the big reveal. There was a time before the internet that if you watched any televised football game and it got down to field goal time, that there was almost guaranteed you're going to see a Bible verse once the ball went through the uh, end zone, right? And it was usually a guy wearing a rainbow afro wig, and he held up this sign. What does the sign say? John 3.16. Do you remember that? Anybody? Okay, John 3.16. Because basically it was somebody being very creative with evangelism, saying we've got one second, two seconds on national TV. People are going to see one thing. If there's one thing we want people to know about God, about the kingdom, about right and wrong, is what? We're going to go to John 3.16 because it is, it, it's the entire gospel that's brought down. So people go, John 3.16, that sounds like a Bible something. Let's look at a John 3.16. Ah. And, and it's, it's a way of connecting. And it's genius when you think about it. It's kind of suffered from inflation now. But it's genius. But what we're recognizing or what we see now is that it's become so familiar to us. You know, if you just pray this, we, we make it into a prayer, which Jesus never did. Make it into a prayer. If you just pray this prayer, you're going to be a believer. No. It didn't say if you pray this prayer, you'll have eternal life. Did it say that? Uh-uh. You see, facts, a checklist. I believe you've laid out a good case, Bill. Oh, I see this. This makes logical sense in Scripture. Um, I look at a statement of faith, and yeah, I can go with it, and I'll check out the box. That's not belief. That's not faith. That's wrangling facts. Jesus is later going to call out some of the religious leader, and he says, uh, um, the demons have better theology than you guys, and it's not helping them. They know who I am. You guys don't. They do. It's not helping them at all. So just having the facts, being on the right side, checking your name off on the right document, that is not what salvation is about. It's belief in him, and the entire way that Jesus engages it with Nicodemus, it's a relationship. It's paternity. See, Nicodemus was asking for the Jerry Springer DNA test. Okay, what scripture, what covenant promise, what ethnic marker, what, what behavioral thing that sets me apart shows and guarantees that that's my daddy. And he said, none of those whatsoever. All of those were scaffolding. All of those were a family album, if you would. So you could get to see what the stories and the people and what's going on. But what makes paternity paternity is the adoptive relationship. Who do we allow to truly raise us? And so the, the great mistake of, of reducing this into one thing is that we tend to think Christianity comes down to, it's inaugurated with, by saying a prayer. Did you say the sinner's prayer? Did you give an altar call? Did people come up and do this? None of that makes you a believer. None of it, none of it, none of it. Okay, let me be super clear. You can't look back and say, I became a believer when I prayed this prayer. That didn't make you a believer. You're a believer when you believed. That's why you're called a believer, right? You're not called a prayer. You're not called a uh, confessor. You're called a believer because we believe, we know this is true. Now, the prayer sets our heart. The prayer is part of the outworking of this. It's part of the, the make it real because talk is cheap and thoughts are even cheaper. It's super easy us for saying, oh, yeah, I believe. Well, God, I, I, I thought this happy thought. Wasn't that enough? So he's saying if it's true, it's true in every aspect of your life. So let's start marching it out and, and, and invading it. So with the heart you believe, with the mouth you confess, because it's congruent, it's one. 
I believe, I know this is true. I want others to know my life is taking a different direction. It's the the outflowing of all of this and it's paternity. I learned to see myself this way. I'm I'm, I'm allowing you to tell me who I am. I learned to, 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 to handle my righteousness this way. I'm allowing you to. And it's, it's, it's not putting the cart before the horse. I'd like to invite the uh, deacons forward because there is no greater application to this simple truth which we have reduced because it's already beyond what we can, we can understand, but we reduced it so we can take the next step. For God so loved the world, the world in its brokenness, the world in its hate, the world in its intractable situation, the world in its racism and its sexism and its abuse and its intolerance. The divided heart within God's people, divided church within God's world. For God so loved the world as it was, as it is, that he sent his one and only son. And that anyone, anyone, anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have the life of the age that is to come that begins now and increases and lights up and is our true identity and who we are. It is relationship with him. Talks about our human nature. Says if we don't believe we're condemned already because all of us have gone our own way. All of us have decided I can do this better than God. All of us have hurt others, hurt God, and God takes that personally. And so in a way of saying we've chosen to live without God, And the consequence of that is God will give us just that in eternity. But God loves us too much to leave us in that situation. So he enters into whatever situation in which we find ourselves and says, open up your hand. Whatever you're clinging to, it's not enough. You believe in me that I've already, everything you did that separates you from God, I've taken out of the way already. You trust me that my righteousness is enough, that my sacrifice for you is enough, that my love for you is enough. And that God is the one who's put this in your heart. And you can be free. You can be at liberty. And that's what he offers us. He talks about anybody who's still in the darkness flees from the light. Anybody ever go into a kitchen late at night? Turn on the lights? You have some friends that scamper out of the way? That is us outside of God. Because we're afraid of the light. We think it's going to show us for how we are. And we don't want to see how ugly we are. So we hide. But Jesus and what he was telling Nicodemus and what he tells us is that he already sees us just as we are, warts and all, more than we could ever be aware of. And he's okay sitting with us, sitting with us in our mess. Read next week, John chapter 4, if you don't believe me. He's okay sitting with us exactly as we are, that we can learn this is what paternity is. It's being adopted. It's being beloved. it's, It's learning to do family and take on the family resemblance, which is holiness which is liberty, which is grace, which is love. And so that is what we celebrate through the symbols of the Lord's Supper. We recognize that the religion, which we are pretty good at as people, and as evangelical Christians, we've perfected our own forms and gildings and ways of doing this. It's very familiar to us. Religion's very wieldly. We're good at playing the games. We're good at working the levers. It's a safe place to hide behind because it's familiar. And we're very good at showing people our awesome scaffolding. God doesn't care about any of that. He came to sit with us right in the midst of this work project that nobody sees how it's going to end except for him. And he says, it's beautiful. He goes beyond, it's very good. He says, I delight in this. I long for this. And I long to give you your true name, who you really are. 
that what the world has told you you are and broken you down will not be the final word, but it's the next step in you realizing how much greater, how much deeper, how much more profound, invigorating, satisfying, vitalizing my love is. And so we recognize it, not to us, O oh Lord, but to you, in your grace and your mercy. 